Good morning. My name is Aubrey. It's very nice to see you. If you have a Bible, find our gospel reading, Luke chapter 10. Let's imagine ourselves there when Jesus told the story. Uh, Let's imagine ourselves in the crowd. A lawyer stands up. Jesus is seated. This is traditional traditional Middle Eastern kind of context. Um, I think the analogy for our culture is when a judge enters a courtroom, they say, all rise, and the judge sits, and everybody's standing. This is a carryover from very old cultures where the person of honor sits while everyone stands. That's what's going on here. That's why it says the lawyer stood up. He stood up as the cultural way of indicating respect and honor for Jesus, the rabbi. But there's a tone to his question. There's an edge to it. And because we, we weren't there, Luke, the narrator, helps us to hear it in our imagination by saying he stood up, the move of respect, to test him. He's baiting Jesus. What should I do to inherit eternal life? It, it was a question that we know from lots of um, historical artifacts that the various schools of Judaism were debating in that day. So he's trying to draw Jesus into this kind of political landscape. He's baiting him. He's testing him. He's trying to trick him. What does Jesus do? Jesus, like um, a good debater, says, well, what do you think? Because Jesus knows he's trying to trick him. So he... He's trying to help him see something. And the guy says, well, what it says, what it says in, in the law, in Scripture. Both the lawyer and Jesus agree that the Old Testament Scriptures are revealed from God and have authority. And so he says the law tells us to love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love our neighbors ourselves. And Jesus says, that's it. That's, that's what it is. Now go and do it. Now the lawyer who was on the offensive is on the defensive. He wanted to stay in the realm of theory and debate, but Jesus puts his finger on the way he's living his life. So verse 29 says, wishing to justify himself. Give me some definitions here, Jesus. And he expects Jesus, he says, now, who are my neighbors? He expects that Jesus is going to respond like a typical first century Jew and he's going to identify a rather narrow group of people to qualify as neighbor. Now remember our Old Testament reading, Leviticus chapter 19, where God's law about loving neighbors come up? And right there in verse 18, Leviticus 19 verse 18, it says, You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbors yourself. So right there, the word neighbor gets ambiguously handled. You shouldn't take grudges or vengeance against the sons of your own people, but you should love your neighbors yourself. And so what the lawyer was doing was he was leveraging the ambiguity of that statement to restrict neighbor 
to good, observant Jews. Everybody knows Gentiles are not what God is talking about when he's talking about neighbors. Everyone knows God hates Samaritans. Certainly they don't qualify. It's disgusting, isn't it? I mean, hearing that come out of my mouth. It reminds us, doesn't it, of our own nation's recent history, doesn't it? These kind of stark, prejudicial kind of postures. So Jesus tells this story. The story that's become so famous. The the parable of the Good Samaritan. This story that Drew read to us earlier. And there's this remarkably kind and compassionate Samaritan, who at enormous personal cost and at great risk to himself, rescues a man who's been beaten, robbed, left for dead in a ditch. The Samaritan saves the man's life. Make no mistake about it. Jesus is talking about himself. He is the good Samaritan. You and I. See, we can, we're, we're just like the lawyer, aren't we? Enslaved to some really ugly stuff. Oh, we present well, but we've got these issues in our life. We're crippled by pride and enslaved to anger and lust and laziness and prejudice. And look how much Jesus loves us. He's the good Samaritan. He is the unexpected Savior. No, nobody expect, Look, when you tell a story and there's three characters in it, you establish a pattern in the first two. A Catholic, a Protestant, and a Jew walk into a bar. When Jesus, look, there were three primary groups of people who worked at the temple. Priests, Levites, and Jewish laymen. This was a set formula. Priest walks by, Levite walks by. Everybody knows the next person coming down the road is a Jewish layman. Never a Samaritan. And Jesus is saying to this guy, look, you're coming to me like you're all nice, but we both know that you are a half-dead creature lying in a ditch, and you are not looking to me to save you. He's the unexpected savior, the generous stranger, the wealthy physician who lovingly moves toward us at enormous personal cost, rescues us, heals us, saves us. And then Jesus tells the lawyer, look how it ends in verse 36. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Be a neighbor, be like me. Be a neighbor to people. Be like the Good Samaritan. That's what we're supposed to do with this. We're supposed to look at this story and we're supposed to say, How can we be like Jesus? How can we be like the Good Samaritan? Three ways Jesus, the Good Samaritan, loves his neighbor. Three ways to love our neighbors like Jesus loves us. First, to love your neighbor, you have to see your neighbor with the eyes of love. 
Did you notice all three people who walked down the road saw the man half dead in the ditch? Look at verse 31. Now, by chance, a priest was going down the road. When he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came down to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, it's this cadence that he sets up, right? Guy walking down the road, sees him, goes to the other side. Sees him, goes to the other side. Sees him, and now it doesn't say he goes to the other side. Suddenly, there's a change in the formula. Instead of saying he goes to the other side, what does he do? It says he saw him, and he had compassion. The difference between the Samaritan and the other two was that the Samaritan saw him differently. He saw him with the eyes of love. And that's the turning point of the whole story. So there's this technique um, in Jewish storytelling where they would organize the story like an X. It's called a chiasm. So what happens is the first part of the story is here, call it A prime. And then the second part of the story, call it B prime. And then the third part of the story, call it C prime. And then the fourth part of the story, call it D. And then the fifth part is parallel to the third part, C secondary. And then the, the sixth part is parallel to the, sec, the second part. And, and the seventh part, because there's seven parts to this story, is parallel to the first part. And this way of telling a story is quite common in oral cultures. And one of the reasons they do it is because the whole story drives in to a middle point, and the middle point is the point. Do you know what the exact middle point of the whole story is? He had compassion. That's the difference. That's how the whole story changes. The whole story shifts around his compassionate looking. And, and one of the reasons we need to see this is because, remember I said the Good Samaritan is Jesus. The, last, the first time we come across this word, compassion, is back in Luke chapter 1, verse 78, when Zechariah is singing about God, and he says, God, because of the tender mercy of God, the sunrise shall visit us on high. When Zechariah is praising God for sending Jesus, he says the whole reason God sends Jesus is because he looks at us with compassion. And then in chapter 7, verse 13, as Jesus is walking through Israel, it says he sees this woman, this widow woman whose son has died. And when the Lord Jesus saw her, he had compassion. It's the exact same word. And it's the same word that comes up in Luke chapter 15. When the father is looking down the road. And he sees the prodigal son. And he sees him with compassion. The Samaritan is Jesus. This is how God looks at our world. This is how God looks at you. He, when he looks at you, his gut view of you is compassion. He loves you more than you love your children. He has more compassion, more mercy, more fundamental delight in you than you had at your child when your child was born. So when we see the, when the Samaritan sees the man in the ditch, he is participating in the compassion and faithfulness of God who sees us with love. So to see with the eye of love means we see our neighbor the way God sees our neighbor. How is that? How does, how does God look at you? He looks at you primarily as a bearer of his image and thus worthy of honor. Worthy of honor. 
You, when you look at your neighbor, you should not ask, what does my neighbor deserve from me? You should ask, what does God deserve from me? Because your neighbor bears the image of God. And then you treat your neighbor accordingly. To see what the eyes of love means to look at someone knowing they bear the glory of God. And therefore you honor them. You protect them. Second, to see with the eyes of love, it means we see their pain. We see their pain. We have to learn to recognize the pain. Especially the pain that's hard to see. For example, the wounds that people experience in our society like in this society, that are a result of cultural forces. Some wounds are easy to see, but others are hidden. And how, what are they hidden by? The biggest hiding of a wound is from prejudice. That's what this whole story turns on. It all turns on prejudice. The whole story turns on the centuries-long hatred between Jews and Samaritans, a hatred and a prejudice that had been institutionalized and prescribed into the law and worked into the very fabric of the systems of society. The reason the priest and the Levite didn't see this man with the eyes of love is because of the way the culture had functioned and, and had shaped them for this particular situation. To see with the eyes of love means to see wounds, especially the wounds inflicted by systems that because of our complicity in those systems, we miss them. Third, to see with the eyes of love, it means seeing someone's possibility. And refusing to reduce a person to their habits, to their worst selves, to their bleakest trajectory. To see with the eyes of love means to hope all things. Not to say, see, I told you so. Yep, that's where it's going to take him. So first, to be the kind of person who loves our neighbor as we love ourselves, we have to cultivate this way of seeing people, this way of seeing with the eyes of love. And, and then, number two, we have to take up the works of love. We have to take up the works of love. Not only is the Samaritan moved with compassion, he then moves over to the ditch and does something about it. Not just any action. He does actions of love. Look at verse 34. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. Love is not simply the goal we're aiming at. It's the means we have to use to get to the goal. To take up the works of love is to refuse to be content with easy definitions which allow us to watch most of the world lying half dead in the ditch. See, that's the issue. The, 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 this lawyer had a definition of neighbor that actually allowed him to walk by a half-dead creature in a ditch. 
Remember, the lawyer was looking for a way to define reality that let him off the hook from this particular neighbor. What is at stake, both then and now, is the question of whether we will use the God-given revelation of love and grace as a way of boosting our own sense of isolated security and purity, or whether we will see it as a call and a challenge to extend love and grace to the whole world. Do you see this lawyer? Do you see the barriers he faced and we all face? We have to see ourselves as the lawyer. We have to see ourselves as as wrapped up in culture in a way that makes us have this kind of sanctimonious protection of the status quo with its blindness to the wickedness and the suffering that's embedded in the system. This is one of the reasons we've asked Jamar Tisby to come and talk to our church in our city about racism because, look, racism is buried in our system. And at the end of slavery, we just shifted it to mass incarceration. And look around this room. We're the complicit ones. And the answer to systemically inscribed prejudicial practices can never be hatred of prejudice. It always has to be expressed in actions that are systemic. You can only address systemic evil with systemic actions. So it is not enough to be middle class white Christians who hate racism. The question which has to be put to every church, is the question whether that church is a credible sign to its city of God's reign and God's justice and God's mercy over all of life, whether it cares for all of its neighbors. As a church, we must be against sin, absolutely, but we must be just as strongly for compassion to the poor, justice for the oppressed, protection for the vulnerable, and the transformation of our city into a place of shalom for everyone. Every day you drive downtown, you drive past an overcrowded jail. Is it filled with those who bear the image of God? Do you know if our jailers are treating them as if they bear the image of God? Do you know or do you, do, do you and I get the, the amazing protection of living our middle class white lives and not even having to know that? So to be the kind of person who loves our neighbor as we love ourselves, we have to see with the eyes of love and we have to actually take up the works of love. And number three, we will, we've got to be prepared to embrace the wounds of love. Look again at the Good Samaritan. He is using all of his available resources, oil, wine, a cloth wrapping his animal, his energy, and his time, all of it to care for this wounded man. And then, then, in this next part we miss because of cultural mistranslation, but everybody hearing the story would have got it in its original telling. He risked his life when he takes the man to an inn. Where did the robbery occur? In the wilderness between Jerusalem and Jericho, there is zero archaeological evidence of ever having an inn built in that part of the wilderness. The only nearest inn was in Jericho. And no Samaritan was safe in Jericho. 
Let me put this in an American context. Imagine 1964, Mississippi. Imagine an African-American man finding a white woman beaten and naked on the side of the road in the country outside of Meridian. Imagine he cares for her. He loads her into his car. And then imagine an African-American man arrives at a motel with a beaten, naked, white woman in 1964, Meridian, Mississippi. And he takes her into a motel room and he cares for her. Do you know what he's exposed to? We know what he's exposed to. Because in 1964, Meridian, Mississippi, James Cheney, Andrew Goodman, and Michael Schwerner on Sunday, June 21st, 1964, were abducted and murdered because they were just registering African Americans to vote. Do you see what this Jewish, what this Samaritan man risked by taking this man? What could he have done? He could have dropped him off at the edge of town and headed on, but he didn't. He went to the inn. Do you see that after the Samaritan paid his bill, he still had to escape? Was there a crowd outside the inn waiting for him? We don't know because this parable, like so many of Jesus' parable, leaves the ending for you to figure out. Was he beaten or killed? He was. Because you see, the story is told right after John, Luke chapter 9, verse 51, where it says, Jesus set his face like flint toward Jerusalem. Jesus is the Samaritan. He is the one on the road. And we know what happens to him at the end of this road. We know that they beat him and they kill him. We know that what he was doing on that road was rescuing us out of a ditch. And we know what he got for it. Now, what I'm saying is that the call to love our neighbor as ourselves is a call to suffer the wounds of love. One of the most painful experiences of reading the Gospels is seeing that while Jesus spoke so much of love, he was so frequently hated. This one who spoke so much of peace died from a violent crucifixion. And while Jesus' life and suffering were unique, he taught us over and over that his suffering was the normal suffering for those who take up the works of love. He told us that he expected this suffering not only for himself, but for everyone who walks in the ways of love. If you want to go with me, take up your cross and follow me. He knew that seeing others with the eyes of love did not mean those people that you were looking at with love would look back at you with love. He taught us that taking up the works of love for others did not mean those same works would be taken up in return for us. He is teaching us in this parable that the call to love our neighbors inevitably entailed the renunciation of ourselves. When he says, you go and do likewise, this is what he's talking about. Not just seeing with the eyes of love and taking up the works of love, but he's talking about embracing the wounds of love. And this is so difficult for us because we live in an age that specializes in the avoidance of pain. Our culture at every turn saturates us in the ways of entitled selfishness. How in the world can we become the kind of people who devote ourselves to works of love that require not rights, but the giving up of rights? Not protection, but self-renunciation. How can we become the kind of people who will choose the well-being of our neighbors over our own comfort when everything in our culture makes us become people who demand our rights 
and fight for what we deserve. This is God's word. Jesus is God in the flesh. And so through this remarkable story, he is not just telling the lawyer, you go and do likewise. He's telling you and me today, go and do likewise. He's calling us to be people who are so committed to the thriving of our neighbor that we will actually do it when it means our own wounding. How can we do that? How will we sustain a life that shows love and gets abused in return. I mean, think about it on this level. Has there ever been a moment, ever been a moment in your life when you serve someone who is suffering or in need or weak and they're vulnerable and, and they misunderstood it? And they accused you of some nefarious intent? Have you ever given love to be blown back on? Do you get angry? Do you get frustrated? Do you say, fine then, and give up? And that's just on a pedantic minor level. What I'm getting at is this. How can we become the kind of people who actually go and do this stuff? How can we become the kind of people who are capable of acting in love, which on the one hand is without preference or prejudice, and on the other hand expects nothing in return? Well, look at verse 38. As they went on their journey, on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving. And she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. Come back to that word, portion which will not be taken from her. Isn't Martha doing exactly what the Good Samaritan did? Isn't she serving? Isn't she caring? She is. See that word in verse 38, welcomed? This word implies hospitality to its most extravagant extent. I mean, who did she welcome into her home? Thirteen hungry, journey-tired men. How do you prepare food for that many people kind of out of the blue when you've got to build fires? I mean, this is, right, the act of hospitality she extends here is significant. But she grows agitated while she's doing it, anxious. In fact, Jesus says to her, you are distracted with much serving. It's a word in Greek. It's actually a word picture, and it's the picture of getting pulled in all different kinds of directions. Look what she says in verse 40. Three times she talks about herself, right? She went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. Three times in what, 20 words? The word me comes up. Remember this whole thing started back in verse 27 with the double command of love. Love God with all of your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. Now here's what you've got to see. The story of the Good Samaritan is the teaching of the second command. Here's what it looks like to love your neighbors yourself. The story of Mary and Martha is the teaching of what the first command looks like. Here's what it looks like to love God. And like Drew said, they've got to go together. So you see, the story of Mary and Martha is showing us the difficulty 
of suffering the wounds of love when we try to love in our own energy it'll wear you out you'll become like Martha you'll start accusing people you'll get resentful when people don't show up and help your love turns to anger there's a danger of activism done in the name of God unaccompanied by the counterbalance of that deep, quiet, calm, daily adoration of the Lord Jesus Christ where we sit at his feet. Martha was well-intentioned. She just ran out of steam. And you know what? She called Jesus Lord, but she treated him like he was against her. You've left me alone. My sister's left me alone. I mean, that's the crazy thing, isn't it, about unrequited love? It can turn you into a person who becomes suspicious of your family and even of God. Look at verse 40. 41, the Lord said to her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion. That word portion in Greek, this was originally written in Greek. And the people reading this, they read the Old Testament in Greek. You know where that word shows up? It shows up in Genesis chapter 18, verse 8, talking about food. And again in 1 Samuel chapter Chapter 1, verse 4, talking about food. Do you see the irony? Martha's preparing food when food is in her living room. Martha's baking bread when the bread of life is being offered to her. Martha's trying to serve when she has to start with letting God serve her. That's what Jesus told the the lawyer. He said, listen, man, you got to let me be your neighbor. And when you let me find you half dead, when you own up to the fact that you are not like you present, and you let me save you and let, you let me bind up your wounds, that's what the front of our worship guide is about. You need to look at that picture and you need to see that is you with the wounds. That is the Lord Christ who's caring for you. When you let me serve you first, then... You can serve me in the world. You see, the order is all important. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbors yourself. If you get them out of order, you will actually become an accuser of those you're serving when they don't reciprocate according to your desires. How in the world can we serve our world as good neighbors? Here's how. Here's how. The way we do it is when we feast on Christ. When we let he, who is the essence of all love, come into our lives. Here's the irony. Martha was trying to serve the Lord. When the Lord was right there in her room and she missed it. She missed it. And it's so easy for us to sit on the outside and look in and see that Martha missed it. You will do the same thing if you live a life of hyperactivism. And you think that you can serve God's ways in this world without daily getting still with God and listening for his voice with all the best intentions in the world. You will miss it. And you will become an ugly person in your quest to do good. 
Jesus loved the lawyer. And so he led him with gentleness to see his own need. Have you seen your need for Jesus? Have you seen that you're not as well off as you present? Jesus loved Martha. That's why he said her name twice. It was a Middle Eastern um, way of showing affection. Martha, Martha. Have you seen that you must not try to serve the Lord in a hectic way? If you do, you will miss the Lord. So think about the whole section. On the one hand, you've got the lawyer. He's missing God's work in the world because of his selfish self-assurance, his self-righteousness, and it's manifested in his prejudice, his racism. And then you've got Martha, and her self-assurance is manifested in her hyperactivism that she's disconnected, that makes her miss the fact. Look, if Jesus wasn't God, then the story of Mary and Martha is just a cute little moral for when you're giving hospitality, don't get so caught up in the action of it that you actually missed your neighbor. You know, that kind of thing. That's, that's, a, good, that's a good rule of thumb. Don't be so busy making everything right that you actually don't care for the people you're serving. But this was the Lord Jesus Christ. That is way down the line in what's going on in this passage. What's going on in this passage is that she missed that Jesus was there. She missed, just like the lawyer, she missed. So we have two people, two ways of missing the point of what Jesus is about and what the reign of God means. To the man, Jesus said, go and do. And to the woman, Jesus said, sit down and listen. If you were to ask Jesus, which applies to you, What would he say? 